Hey, everybody. Welcome to TMD On The Record. This is a podcast where we talk about the relationship between brands and customers. We take a look at some of the challenges facing organizations as they work to understand a more empowered customer and empowered customers that expect and demand more from the brands they choose to be loyal to. Hey, welcome to TMD On The Record. I'm Mike Grant. I'm here with my fellow hosts. I'm Dave Klish. And I'm Jeff Timmons. And I have a very exciting guest today, um, somebody I've known in the industry for a very long time, uh, a local boy with a global reach, the first person that I ever heard even utter the words customer experience or user experience. I mean, I, I, I remember this guy from back when I had my own web development company and all you really talked about then was contact us and about us. And, and this was one of the first guys talking about how the user felt and how the how the customer experience went. Um, somebody that owned a very prominent company here in London called Resolution Interactive Media or ResIM for many, many years and just recently has become the user experience director at Canada Life. I'm talking about none other than Jonathan Coaches. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. It's good to be John, here. John's great to have you here. Jonathan, yeah. welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. As as someone who you know I've I've worked with closely in the past on at other uh, organizations and and on shared projects. Somebody that I you know threatened to work with work for at one point in our in our past as well. Um, <laughs> and you know recently you just decided to make the big move from business owner for many, many years, a successful business owner at that, um, to go over to the, uh, you know, back to, uh, what do we call it? I guess the, the customer side or the, the yep. brand side, but no longer an agency and now working uh, with Canada Life. So, you know, I guess the first real question is, how, how's that gone? I mean, that <laughs> must have been a huge change. It, it has been and it continues to be. Um, and thanks for the kind words too. Uh, Mike, I always enjoyed working with you. Um, I think when you, when I was setting out to make the change, and this is likely true of, of most change, is that it, it doesn't, you can't fully anticipate what it's going to be like until you're in it. Um, and I think even you can prepare yourself and you can um, imagine what it's going to be like, but I don't know, until you're, until you're in it, until you're doing, doing the work or learning, uh, it's just a completely different uh, environment. Um, and and for me, you know, I don't like to throw around the word culture shock because that I think that does a disservice to people who are actually experiencing true culture shock. Um, but it, it kind of felt like that. It's going somewhere, um, you know, and I, and I knew that it would be different. And I told myself to be open to how different this might be. Uh, but then getting into it, um, being being overwhelmed, uh, honestly, was was a good word for it. Just by the the difference in, in probably in in size of business, like Canada Life is thirteen thousand employees or something like that. Not that I'm dealing with even really a fraction of those, but the the apparatus that needs to exist to support that scale of a business is something that I'm not used to. So figuring out how to fit into that, how to work inside of that, um, was a was a big change for me. Thankfully, there's all kinds of support there, so it's not been problematic. But just the volume of change has been has been considerable. Sure, I'm sure you're probably sleeping a little more soundly at night these days. 
Yeah, there's there's certain things going from being an entrepreneur to to not that you don't have to think about anymore that I don't think about anymore. And I've probably even forgotten what it feels like to think about them. Oh, I was just going to say, if you're curious, we can remind you. So it's uh, yes. we're, we're still on the other side, but uh, yes. <laughs> absolutely appreciate that. Let's go back. I want to say probably close to 15 years. I mean, my my chronological uh, reckoning is is usually a little bit off, but somewhere in around there. And I remember when I had my own business, um, there were three big companies in London. There was Res IM, kind of the the cool web company. There was our traction who, who at the time was the big web company. And there was Digital Echidna that was this tiny little um, Drupal shop brand, you know, just kind of moved over to Drupal. And uh, I always remember when I was deciding to make that um, that choice to get out of the agency life, those were the three that I, I went and I spoke to and I really, really wanted to work with because I'd, I'd respected all of you uh, organizations so much. And, you know, that at that time you were focusing pretty much on all types of development. And then you at some point made that shift to becoming a little more strategic, to becoming a little more customer focused and a little more user focused. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, let's talk about that, you know, because at the time I think, you know, nobody really heard that. How, how did you, uh, get folks to understand or to want to understand their customer better and to want to really create a better user experience and really focus on the needs of the user versus the needs of the business. I think if I look back on when we first started really doing that kind of work, it was, it was out of necessity to move some decisions along faster and with more uh, objectivity. So as the business grew and as we, you know, as, as any business would experience, the projects become larger, as projects become larger, the organizations behind them are typically larger, um, more stakeholders involved, more complex. Uh, and so I remember one specific project for a, a college here in Ontario, and we were trying to make decisions around information architecture. And the discussion had kind of not devolved into argument, but, um, you know, some positions that were pretty strongly held. Uh, and there was no, you know, I could come to the table and say, well, I think it should be this way based on what I know. The organization says, well, no, it should be this based on what we're trying to achieve. And there was no, there was no other voice in there to say, well, wait a minute, I'm the one who's using this and this is what I think. And there was no uh, representative or no advocate for that voice either. Um, and so doing, it was, I think it was like, tree testing or information architecture testing menu testing or something like that that, that we use very basic uh, not really any kind of like interviews or getting to know people but trying to understand how they perceive choices and how they would make choices based on a set of options um, we were able to to say well this is you know this is what the users are uh, telling us about how they understand how something should work or how they think it should work what their mental model is for what this should be um, and that allowed that decision to, to move quickly with uh, objectivity and with a focus on the user that was very hard to argue with. And, and so it, it became, um, not only did it result in, in digital products and services that were actually easy to use, it, it moved the effort needed to get there along faster. Right. And, and, and then you start to see, well, we should 
you know, the outcome of that was positive. What else can we do? What else can we learn? What else can we try? Um, where are the other points in a project that we could use this? Could it start earlier? Is there something later down the road too? So that kind of opened um, opened my eyes to that as a practical business tool in addition to all the other benefits it has. Right. What if, what if any, Jonathan, like what, what hesitations or like where was where was the uncertainty? What were some of the barriers you had to overcome to sort of get those folks to maybe just switch their view from, you know, that internal, you mm-hmm. know, organizational inside out view to embracing and maybe welcoming a more objective user centric view? What were some of the things that you had to help them overcome? Um, it, there wasn't a ton to help them overcome. Um, it was more a a natural result of nobody wanting to be the person in the room to say, well, I don't agree with the users. We should do it my way. That's um, that's a very hard thing. It takes a special person to say that. Um, and and when you present it and say, well, this is this is how we found out. This is what we found out. This is why it matters. And you infuse that with actual, you know, responses from people, um, recordings of things they've said. Uh, to really add that connection to the person who's going to be used it, it becomes a difficult thing to say, no, 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 I think it should be this way because I saw it on XYZ and, you know, who cares what the user thinks. So um, it's it was an effective way to to facilitate conversation as well. Have you mm-hmm. had anybody say, yeah, I don't care about the research. This is my project, my business. This is how I want it. There has been... Um, you get the question quite often, well, how many people said that? Or how many people did we talk to? Or or, or did we do enough of this to be certain that what you're saying is uh, is accurate enough or gives us enough confidence to move forward? So certainly, and that question still comes up all the time. Yeah, Jonathan, one of the things we um, we pride ourselves on really in, in our business is we talk about this 10th voice principle and this opportunity to, uh, and it's somewhat, respectful way, um, more than somewhat respectful, but this idea of challenging convention and challenging principle, which is something you certainly would have um, run up against. And, uh, you know, I kind of want to change the conversation a little bit before you tech guys get too far ahead of me, uh, because it takes me a long time as a brand guy to to uh, to process this. But, you know, um, because being a brand guy, frankly, I'm I'm more about pretty pictures and and words and how it all um, connects together. But can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, does kind of UX and CX in the, you know, I think a lot of times they get used synonymously. And uh, uh, I sometimes just think that, you know, it might be good for our listeners to understand what that difference is between UX and CX. Yeah, that's a really good question. And you, when you start to break down what those acronyms stand for, you think, well, an experience is an experience. I mean, it, it's different in context, but it, it kind of describes the same thing. Um, so what's the difference between a customer and a user? Well, that's that's where it gets a little more difficult to to understand there. There's a lot of overlap. I think one of the best ways to to describe it is that customer, customer experience would typically have a, a much broader horizon over the end-to-end journey that a customer might go through as they're experiencing any brand business organization. Um, so if you looked at a journey that started in a, in a, you know, where somebody is not a customer, where they are being introduced to a brand, they have a need, they, they've, you know, the, the sales funnel sort of thing, 
um, recognizing their needs, finding the you know the, the solution to that, engaging somebody to to fill that need by buying something, um, and then once they become a customer, what steps do they go through? Um, maybe afterwards, how do they become a customer again? And all the touch points across that. So whether those are physical touch points, like being in a branch somewhere, being in a, a physical location, being in store, um, seeing something in a physical environment, um, interacting with somebody uh, like a, a human being on the phone or uh, otherwise, um, receiving customer service in some way, processing a return, um, all those different touch points, which are increasingly becoming digital, but don't necessarily have to be, would be the scope of of customer experience. Whereas user experience would narrow in on the parts of that that are digital and that are delivered exclusively in a, in a digital context usually. So uh, things that are delivered on web or on your phone in a mobile app or uh, any kind of application voice would be something that's sort of starting to fit into that as well. Um, so it's it's a it's a narrower scope of of customer experience that is focused exclusively almost in most cases on what those digital touch points are so what is somebody trying to achieve at that digital touch point what are they you know what are their motives um why are they there how do we make it easy for them what do they hope to gain how will we know it's working that sort of thing across all those digital touch points and when you think about it now um especially over the last let's say year and a bit those digital touch points are really starting to um, take precedence or become a very common or almost default way that uh, a customer would interact with a business. So the lines are getting even more blurry, um, I'll say, but I think that's probably the best way to describe it. If I'm working in UX, I wouldn't be involved in not likely in what it's like for somebody to go into a bank branch, wait in line, talk to a teller, that sort of thing. If I worked for a bank, that would probably be out of my sphere. Um, not yet. Not yet. That, yeah, that's right. But if, <laughs> if that's all, you know, if that's all digital, if that's all through an ATM in the banking context, or if that's all through a screen somewhere, even if it's in an environment that's out of home, um, then then UX would be involved in that as well. So how does a brand bring those aspects together because i hear what you're saying about you know the ux being primarily digitally driven right so that's mm -hmm. primarily the engagement that a brand has with the user in some form of in some digital way or in in uh in some digital channel yeah but the you know the brand experience or the customer experience extends beyond that it's not just it's not just digital like we have a very um multi-channel omni-channel you know, experience dynamic with a brand. Uh, some brands are more, you know, more digital than others. Uh, absolutely. And I think certainly the last, you know, 14, 15 months or so have certainly seen a lot of brands adapt uh, and provide that aspect of the experience. But, you know, we hope to one day be back in restaurants, back on patios, back in retail, you know, back face to face. You know, I think there's a real desire for a lot of consumers to actually embrace that aspect of the experience. How do we bring that together with the the digital user experience? How do we make sure a brand has a full a full 360 view of how they're engaging their consumers? I think the best thing to do as a brand or any any business is to understand as well as you possibly can what that journey is from start to finish considering all touch points um, so being able to to map that out uh, being able to 
align a specific customer type or user type to the the steps that they go through, even if those steps aren't in sequence, which they a lot of times aren't, but knowing physical or not, digital or not, what those touch points are, um, what the, you know, is it, is it a good experience? Is it a poor experience? Does it, is there room for improvement there? Okay, let's focus on that part and begin to dig in there. And you, you, you can map out to some extent what you think, hypothetically, that journey is, um, but you'll never, without talking to customers, you won't understand, you won't get that context for what is it really like? What is this part? Or, or are these steps even in order? Do you even do this? Um, or do we just think you do? Uh, because we, we've developed this um, institutional knowledge over time and we think this is the way it's happened and we've never really revisited that. But in actual fact, step four doesn't even exist anymore because something's replaced it. And, and just getting, you, you need that holistic understanding of the whole piece and then worry about whether the touch points are physical and digital and, and whether they're good or bad or just kind of in the middle. Let me ask you, as UX has evolved and, and matured in the industry, um, you know, businesses tend to want to try to take technology and use them to kind of move customers towards what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think kind of the ethos of UX testing and UX design is really around making a better experience for the user, which yep. may or may not necessarily align with the business needs of the folks who are providing the service. So have you seen as this has matured, I don't know if manipulation is quite the right word, but people trying to use user experience design to actually change the outcomes versus just trying to create a better experience? Yes, for sure. Um, There's a lot of what are called dark patterns in design, mostly where you're, you're almost trying to shame somebody into signing up for something. You've probably seen that. Um, you get a you get a modal that's interrupting your experience, and it says, "Give us your email address, you'll get fifteen percent off." And then they, you know, the, the button to reject that says something like, "No, I'd rather not save money." Um, that's a you know that's a that's a dark pattern. That's a way to try to almost shame or guilt somebody into making a decision that they you know that they might not otherwise want to do. And it's you know it's using all kinds of design practice to make the confirmation button really large and positive and then you know there is a way out but not only is it small hard to find it also says something that's a little untoward or not you know not overly positive and i would i would say the overall though uh, to that point if you are in business and you're providing a service or a product and you you feel like you have to trick or otherwise manipulate your users into finding value in it in some way then you're probably in the wrong business uh, or your service isn't needed or your product isn't valuable. It When the user's goal and the business's goal align, um, then there's success all around and it's it becomes very easy to start to make those digital experiences or physical experiences. Have you had any experiences like that where you've had to try to kind of push back? Uh, we certainly had experiences where we've gone to a client and said, this is actually what's important to your customer. Um, like they post-secondary, I'll go back to that because we've done so much work in that. And, and there's, I guess, generally speaking, most people listening would understand what a college or university is and how it functions broadly. Um, but in the recruitment phase of that, we understand that that students are interested or prospective students want to know what they can take. Can they get in? How much is it going to cost? 
um, we spent a lot of time learning what seems to be a pretty obvious thing. Um, but that's often preceded by, um, you know, large images of people enjoying themselves on campus, which isn't not important. It's just not as primary or sh shouldn't take precedence over the things that we understand to be important. You can mix and you can blend and you can um, have almost equal prioritization. But in, in a lot of cases, and this goes well outside of post-secondary, it's we we may or may not understand what the user is really trying to do, um, but we're going to put all these other things ahead of it. Um, and so a lot of times it's it's going back uh, to the client or to the business and saying we're going to need to you know put this thing a little bit higher up in priority, either in the steps or on the interface or or whatever it is. And that usually the business knows um, they'll you know they'll say oh yeah well that that kind of makes sense, but it becomes very difficult to act on because it is often a mundane thing or seen as mundane. Do you really think the business or the brand or the school, do they really know who the customer or the stakeholder is? Because, you know, quite often, I think, certainly some of our experience has been, you, you do, you get wrapped up as a business in the business model and, and what your objectives and what your goals are. And you're, you're either, I mean, let's face it, you're trying to uh, sell a product or deliver a service or, create value somehow, but it's based on what it is that's going to make your business successful. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what are the what are the what are the types of things that we can do to sort of help ground a business to say, no, no, this is your customer. These are the these are the needs and these are the wants and these are the things that resonate with your customer as it pertains to how you can provide value. Yep. I think that's the that's where the value of, of research, UX research specifically comes in to, to, to be able to say, all right, these, these are the, the, the kinds of people that are our customers and that are our users, and we understand their task priority to be these five things. And at the other end of that task priority are these five things. So let's maybe not focus on those so much as, as the top five. Here's how we know that, um, and here's what we think we should do with that it, it, it and anytime as i mentioned earlier anytime you can infuse presenting that kind of information with audio clips or video clips or something from an interview that that supports that it really bring it makes that human connection you can look at survey data all day long uh top test survey data or you can read interview notes or look at words on a powerpoint deck but um, you need oftentimes that human connection to hear somebody say oh my god when i use this website, I can I can never find this thing. I can never do this thing. I end up calling um, customer support. I spent an hour on the phone and I still can't get this job done. You need to hear um, somebody say that. So research is the way, um, UX research is the way to, to help understand the people so that you can make better decisions as a brand or as a business uh, on that sort of thing. Yeah, I got to imagine that UX research is critical, um, you know, to dealing with the uh, the comment of, well, personally, I think I should do this, you mm -hmm. know, you know, that happens a lot on the, certainly on the brand design side. It's like, you know, I like the color blue. Well, yeah, but you're not the, you're not the target audience. Maybe, you know, blue's not relevant to you. Yeah. Uh, I got to imagine that happens on the, on the UX side too. Sure. It, it's a, it's a color is a subjective choice. Um, and then anything that extends from that, from a visual perspective is a, is a subjective choice or an opinion um, or or something that maybe was partially true at one time, but things change quickly and it's not true anymore. 
so using that UX research takes that subjectivity out of of kind of the design of the UX experience. It does. It, it. I wouldn't say it removes it because it's impossible. We're human beings, right? It's impossible to remove it. But when it comes to decision making, it adds an element that is difficult to ignore, which is a good thing. So I want to go back to something you said about, uh, you know, the importance of human connection and, and how it kind of makes everything real. And of course, you know, as you know, we're in the middle of a lockdown or in our third wave here in Ontario and and we're lacking that human connection incredibly so so i'm just curious how has the last year impacted the type of work that you do the priority of it within business that type of thing have you actually seen a change is this you know this this new wild west for for ux folks because it's instantly become that more important i think it you're right it has instantly become that more important seemingly overnight like from february to march um last year it became incredibly important it it for businesses that weren't already in the process of transforming um it became a rush to do that um and i even in some of the because i was still working on the agency at that time um seeing seeing things change in projects that we were working on like um you know, digitizing certain processes that all of a sudden became like, this is the future of our business. This isn't just something that we thought we should maybe do because everybody has a phone or everybody has a computer. It became, we have no other way to deliver this service in person right now. Um, and we don't know when we'll be able to do that again. Oh, and it turns out because of this work we've been doing, we think we can deliver this virtually or at least lean heavily on that. And we might not need to go back to an in-person model or quite as much. So it it was this um, like a, a mandatory course of action that opened some businesses' eyes to what could be even outside of, of a pandemic. Like we can actually deliver our service this way? I had no idea. Right. I'm curious as well, because of course, you know, folks are kind of unilaterally suffering from incredible mental stress mm -hmm. um, I, th I think patience is probably at an all-time low mm -hmm. what what type of impact does kind of current state human psychology have on the user experience knowing that people don't have the level of patience that they did last year when they're interacting with brands yeah they don't have the level of patience they have entirely different expectations um and i think that I think a lot of it comes down to expectations, right? Like you've had a, I was just, I just had an interview, um, interviewing a, a customer and, um, you know, one of the comments was it's, a, it's a year later, um, things need to be delivered digitally. Like it's an expectation now. There's no, it's not an excuse anymore that we're in this. Um, you know, you've had time, whoever, and all businesses have had time, um, different resources, of course, and different people leading. Um, but, you've had time to to adjust to this and adapt. And my expectation is that I can do this task in this way now, um, maybe because I'm doing it that way through competitors or through other um, other products and services that I'm using, which is another good point. When, when you can, because of this, if you are now able to do something or order something or have some digital value or value digitally that you couldn't before, you come to expect that of 
of more businesses. You don't think as a human being, I'll give these guys a pass because whatever, you know, they're small or there's something I don't know about them or, or whatever. We don't think like that. Um, and, and so the expectation is, is coming up across the board because some businesses have really thrived and really, you know, gone to a digital model and digital delivery of whatever it is they're selling or providing. And the ones who haven't are sticking out like a sore thumb um, when before maybe they didn't quite as much, but they do now. See, I find this really interesting because let's say just the general timelines pre-pandemic, you know, advanced ability to provide a service or an online experience might have been perceived as a differentiator, right? It might have been perceived as something that gave them an advantage, some sort of a competitive advantage. But what you just said I found really interesting is that, you know, people are at the point now after a year and change of this where that's now table stakes. It's an expectation. Yep. Not being able to deliver in that way, really, um, if you're not able to, it, it might be, you know, one of the final nails in the coffin. Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side of that, this may be more in-person in person or more traditional user experience or more traditional brand experience. If the user experience, the digital user experience is now table stakes, it is now must have in order for a brand to compete and survive. Does that more traditional model, is that really where there's an opportunity to differentiate and stand out now? Like does the online experience really just become a wash? Because you know what, this is basic capability. If you guys can't do this now, you're shit out of luck. Like it's, you're not going to make it, but mm. really where the, the opportunity for you to differentiate from a brand perspective, do we almost go back to basics where it is that more face-to-face -face, in person engagement, those, those things that are maybe now an extension of that digital experience, as opposed to pre pandemic, where the digital user experience was an extension of the traditional experience. Do you see that being the reverse going forward? I haven't thought of it that way, but that's a wonderful perspective. Uh, I think, to your point, at one at, at, at one you know one point in time, an amazing digital experience was the outlier and was the the thing that would catch somebody by surprise in a really positive way. Um, and and now, what what if what if that changes to the in person? I haven't given that much thought, but if I can receive this exceptional service in person. Um, whether it's retail or, or food and beverage or, or, or whatever it is, um, there's an opportunity to differentiate there, I think. And, and it, I don't know, it's because all the digital is, it's not equal. There's some that are, you know, really good and some that are really bad, but it's, I think it's becoming more, um, more equal. And if you looked at the entire journey and thought we can be strong and digital here because we need to be, because that's table stakes. And then there's this interaction that, we think we can really provide a ton of value through this in-person experience and this is how we're going to do it because this is what we understand about it um let's focus on that now that the digital is sort of up to that table stakes there's there's opportunity there so you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen um the the best way to succeed is to eliminate user experience right is that no i'm, I'm kidding uh but i think you know i think what we're talking about is uh uh sorry just being a little cheeky there um but I think one of the things we're talking about is something I, you know, I often talk to our our clients and and customers about is this kind of um, almost unknown 
thing that's happened to a lot of people, which is, you know, the Amazon Prime or the Amazon effect, um, you know, or the social media effect of this instant, you know, and they've they've used user experience to set the bar. Like if you can't deliver next day, if your shipping's not free, then, you know, you're way behind. And uh, and it just shows you like the pioneer of pioneering of of the user experience that they created. Um, and, but even on how people interact with brands, it's, you know, if I send you a, um, if I send a message on a, you know, through a social channel to a brand to ask about whatever it might be, my expectation is I'm getting a response immediately because mm-hmm. social and the way that we use social is set that up. And that's really part of kind of delivering on that user experience. Jonathan, I was going to ask you, you know, is there a brand that, that you look at from a user experience perspective that you're like, that's the model. Those guys, they nail it. You know, is that, you know, oh, sorry, Mike, did I steal your question? I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand down right now. <laughs> oh, Bam. This um, is, uh, that's a good, um, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of somewhere where I've had, and this, I think this is, Dave, this is to your point. I'm, I, because I want to remember something that, um, you know, blew the doors off, but they all seem the same. They they seem like they're living up to my expectations. They seem like I can order this thing. I know when it's going to get here. Uh, and it's in a reasonable amount of time. I can return it easily. All of that is table stakes, and I'm experiencing all of that. Um, you know, almost anywhere I go now to to order things. Um, I, I recently uh, had a good experience with. Um, a company called Altitude Sports. I think they're in in Montreal. I ordered oh, yeah. some they're cycling. Like an old client of mine. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Yeah, so they I ordered some cycling stuff through there, um, or some sunglasses actually, and I needed to return them. The return process was easy. I was getting being communicated with frequently. Uh, I knew it was up. They gave me a, a tracking number for the return. So the glasses were actually for my kid. And when he was when he kept bugging me about one of those going to be returned so you can get the new ones, uh, I could give him an answer. So that was good, but. It, that's what I would expect. If if I couldn't get that, I'd be pissed off, and I would, yeah. you know, I would think I probably won't order from from this company again because I need to know that because returns are a thing. I can't yeah. go get sunglasses on the store. I can't. Yeah. And there and there's a brand just you know um, that was of uh, you know I'm sure Altitude Sports isn't listening, but they were an average retailer. Like they were okay, you mm-hmm. know, in, in my dealings with them, uh, they weren't great. But th- what they did is right away. They said, you know, they always had a, a good e-commerce, I'll call it e-commerce user experience. But when this um, pandemic started to happen, they supercharged it. And they, I think, are a model of, you know, uh, how to, you know, create the right experience for what the customer needed. And, you know, their business has exploded because of it. You know, they've gone from being a, you know, um, small market retailer to being a frankly a national powerhouse um, and really now becoming the international model for for that industry so yeah. Yeah, that's a great example you're just yeah, trying to get free sunglasses <laughs> I, already, I already got them <laughs> so i mean it sounds like what we're saying is jonathan the the work that you and and your colleagues in the industry are doing have raised the bar on on customer experience and user experience so high now that if it's not excellent it's crap and the fact that you couldn't pick out an incredible experience really without 
really is trying to think through it, I, I think is a good indicator of that. So let's flip, let's flip the coin a little bit and go to the other side. So if the bar is super high now and great is just good, I mean, give me an example of awful. Like you don't, if you don't feel comfortable naming anybody, that's fine. This isn't about shaming anyone, but you know, yeah. what are some bad experiences that you've seen that our listeners might uh, benefit from hearing what not to do? Um, anytime I, and this is not specific to any one business, um, but anytime I have to fill out a form for something and I have to like fill it out using the preview app or Adobe app on my computer, I have to print it out and write on it and somehow digitize it again and send it back in and email it or something like that. Um, that to me is a huge pain in the ass. Um, and this is businesses large and small, um, whether you're registering for something, changing something, um, approving something, agreeing to something, whatever it is, I think the forms experience is one uh, that it sounds so boring, right? It's forms, um, but that's such an important part of a lot of businesses. Um, and so I think there's a ton of opportunity there because it's often still not great um, across the board, really. Um, so that, that would be one sort of company not specific thing that is more of a, a theme i guess um the shipping thing is interesting too like paying for shipping i starting not to want to do that um whereas before you'd kind of rationalize and say well it costs money for that truck to drive and so it should cost i should have to pay for it to go on there because i'm not driving to the place to pick it up but now anytime i encounter that i think oh shipping but you're kind of touching on like business models now, right? So we've, it's, to me, there's, there just seemed to be a very fine line between the user experience or the brand experience and the actual business model that's sitting behind the brand that actually supports the delivery of that experience, right? And that can be product and service, sure. Those are the things that we love to bitch about the most, right? But from an organizational perspective, like you just, you talked about the delivery aspect of that and actually like moving something physically sticking mm -hmm. it on a truck mm -hmm. getting some guy with his clipboard to climb up in there after too many cups of coffee drive it across you know wherever to the distribution center unpack it load it into something else like this is all part of a business model right and and for organizations that were that were ramped up like the amazons of the world where like they have this incredible infrastructure in place a lot of organizations that still maybe charge a delivery fee maybe don't have the infrastructure to do that. Um, mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, this pandemic has been a catalyst for, we, you know, we heard words like pivot at the beginning of this thing, right? So to the point where just, I can't hear that word anymore without saying, oh my God, just stop it, right? <laughs> oh, we've got to pivot, we've got to pivot. Um, but a lot of organizations did, and they, they started to either adjust their business models, start to think about how they were going to adapt to this new behavior and these new expectations. But we just said now these expectations are at this at this all time high. You're either there or you're not. So if you're there, let's just assume that you are. What happens when the user expectation or the customer expectation changes? So three months from now, we're starting to enjoy a society maybe that provides us with a little bit, you know, more outside time where we can actually go and see people and and maybe start to think about engaging brands in a different way. What happens to a brand? that has just pivoted like mad for the last 14 months 
made all kinds of investment in technology and infrastructure, only to find that their user or their customer now has changed their mind. Now the customer said, yeah, you know, when I was locked down, that was really, really important. But now I kind of just want to get, I want to walk down the street maybe and go see the local guy. What happens to all these brands that have made these crazy adjustments for all the right reasons, given what was going on? Now we might have to pivot back to some degree. Like how do you kind of undo and maybe unpack the user experience that you've just created and invested so much money in? the first thing you need to do is understand if that's actually going to happen so what you just said speaking you know saying um i want to this was my this was my existence during the pandemic when i was locked down um but now that's different i want to go here i want to do this you as as a business it's your responsibility in my opinion to stay connected and and aware of what your customer is experiencing and what they wish to experience um, and 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 you can lock yourself in a boardroom uh, with the smartest people in the world and try to guess at what's going to happen next. Uh, but until you start to talk to people and you hear, when this is over, I'm going to do this. And now that this is over, I'm doing this. Only then can you can you start to to be able to to make the change to adapt to it. Maybe you can be prepared in some way, thinking that it's going to change, not acting on it yet, but learning from what your customers hope to experience, what they're currently experiencing and and making adjustments to that, trying to, you know, you don't ask a customer what kind of technical solution or what, you know, don't ask them, never ask them to envision a solution for you. That's that's what happens in the boardroom. Um, and, and you, you but you, you need to know what they're going through, what they're expecting, what they're, how they're feeling, how they anticipate the change, how they are changing. Uh, and to use that to continue to adapt the business model. And if that's something front-facing from a business perspective, that's great. If that's something that needs to change structurally or organizationally, like our ability to to fulfill something physically that we couldn't before, or we need to be able to process returns and we could never do that before, um, or we need to enable uh, like online chat, which is a huge customer service advantage that has caught a lot of businesses off guard, in my opinion. Um, being able to understand that and adapt and move forward, it, it, that's the way to do it. Um, and so right. you have to, what happens oftentimes is customers will only be spoken with when there's a particular initiative or problem to solve um, instead of having some kind of ongoing dialogue um, with them, uh, whether that's through you know, conversation or through behavior change that you see on your digital properties or your physical properties. Oh, it's really starting mm -hmm. to pick up or starting to drop off or something like that. So how do you balance the level of engagement that you have with customers? So you just mentioned, you know, you have to have this kind of ongoing engagement, but I think we often see, and especially I would think current times are influencing this, but how do you get the levels right? Because I think there's probably such a thing as engagement fatigue where people are like, I, I don't want to keep telling you how to run your business. Like, mm -hmm. like just give mm -hmm. me the service and just make it good and stop asking me how to do it. Like, how, yep. how do you actually balance? I think there's there's a couple of ways to do that. Interestingly enough, I've found over the last year that people are more willing to have these conversations almost I don't have any, I can't, I can't substantiate that. This is anecdotal. Um, but it seems to me like it's a podcast. It's okay. Wait, wait, I'll, <laughs> I'll include the, uh, my source in the line in, in the notes. Um, 
it seems to me like people are are more willing to have these conversations because they're not doing much or as much or the same thing. Um, so there's there's that part of it. Uh, I think in, you'd be surprised until you actually speak with people how willing they are to support businesses that they actually like. So um, you, you have to take that with a grain of salt as you're interviewing them to know, you know, is there bias there or not. Um, but generally on the whole human beings are interested in in helping especially if there's a long-term benefit for them like i'm going to be able to do this thing online maybe that i couldn't before or and or a short-term one i'm going to get paid 100 bucks for my time which is really important to do uh, those things help with that engagement fatigue um and having a larger pool of people to speak with so you're not constantly going back to the same 10 or 15 over again how do you how do you remove the bias i mean you said you have to be sure to kind of ignore the bias how you have to listen for it and be aware that it's there um and and you don't ask somebody you know do you have a bias towards this company do you like it one way or the other but through conversation you can tell um and so it's important to to then filter what you're learning through that through how you understand their um their position to be so if somebody starts the the if you're doing interviews if somebody starts a video and says i'm such a big fan of business xyz i've been using your company for 10 years i just love it and then you get into the you know the meat of the interview the questions and and all they ever say is this is wonderful even if you know it's not uh, this is wonderful this always works for me i've never had any problems but you can look at their purchase history and they had like four returns uh to to know that all right so maybe some of what they're saying we should look into or pay some attention to but also we should be aware uh, put a flag on this interview in some way that they were coming into it with a certain uh, predisposition. The same is true on the negative side. Um, like, I hate your business. I, I never want to deal with it again. Um, but in those cases, I think that's where you really lean in. It's a different kind of bias, I suppose, but it's better uh, because they have had a poor experience. They're willing to speak with you. Uh, so it matters enough to them that they're on the phone or on the call. Um, and then and then listening to it to what they you know what they have to say um again you know making sure that they just don't have there's some other reason maybe that they don't like the business um but right. you've got to pay attention to that right but what you're saying though is is really interesting because we're actually talking about talking to people right so yeah. i think yeah. i think one of the things we take for granted and when we're doing research you know we start talking about data and and you know we can we can very easily slide into a very static perspective on data where it really is just you know a bit of a quantitative you know perspective you you lose a little bit of that that ability to draw down on insights or perspectives you you lose you know the opportunity to take advantage of nonverbal communication when you're actually having a conversation with somebody or listening to their tone of voice or or what have you and i think what i'm hearing there is like those those subtle nuances are so important and they become empirical at a certain point when you're able to at a at a certain scale be able to draw down on on those subtleties on mass right and now all of a sudden they're statistically relevant and to your point you could use it to factor out bias or you can use it to you know qualify or quantify sentiment to some degree that yep. starts to become really powerful it does and it even Getting to getting to some kind of statistically significant number is 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 
with with interviews with um, qualitative research is a, is a challenging thing to do. It's impossible for you to interview a thousand people uh, because that's what you think is a good sample size. But if you're doing a usability test and three people stumble over the same thing, that thing's a problem. It doesn't like it's highly unlikely that those three people have the same whatever approach or the same thing, something common that's causing them to trip over it, you're the problem. The website's the problem, the app's the problem. And so you need to also be able to recognize that I don't, I don't, and you need to know when to stop research. That's the other critical part too. You need to know when to start and you need to know when to stop. If we've, if we're doing a usability study, for example, and, and, and we can identify right away that, yeah, that label or that button or that thing, wherever that's placed just isn't working, um, then we stop and we fix it. It doesn't matter if you, you know, the next two people don't have any problems with it. The fact that three did, you fix it. Um, and, and I think that's an important part to to recognize when it comes to usability work um, as well. Um, is it, you know, two people saying the same things may be a coincidence. Three, you've got to start paying attention to that. If you get to four, you know, drop it and make a change. And when you get to that point, you know, does it, and I know we've talked about this before, and it's it's something that we, uh, we do quite a bit um, here at our firm, but you start to bring personas, you know, um, user personas, uh, customer personas, consumer personas, you start to bring those into play because you've gotten to a certain threshold where you're able to articulate this behavior is pretty consistent with this type of user. How important has, has personas been in, in the work that you've done and that you continue to do? I think they're important when they're done right. They can be, they can be misleading as well. It depends. You could be, I've, I've come into scenarios on different projects where personas exist and I've asked, how did these personas come to be? Uh, well, somebody in marketing wrote them, or this agency wrote them. No offense, it wasn't you. Um, and 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 then you ask, well, where did that? How do they know? How do you know? Well, it's just you know we thought that this was the case. And why why do we care what kind of car they drive? Well, we just kind of thought that would round out the the story better. So those sorts of personas can be dangerous if you are making a lot of decisions based on something that you may or may not be true. Could be yeah. opinion. It could be you know things that we thought would be interesting. The things that we think are happening or that haven't been updated in a while uh, as well, or when they're like really general and they're used for a general purpose, um, but then you've got this specific problem that you're trying to solve with a general persona and it you kind of start to try to infer from this really broad place to a problem that's really specific mm -hmm. and you need to dig into the, the specifics. And you need to say in this scenario, what is it like for this particular person? Or then asking about the persona in, generally, in general, how do we know this? How long has it been since we found this out? Um, you know, did we, are, are we confident in this now? How might this have changed? Um, mm -hmm. How might we be wrong right. uh, is another one. So yeah. they're good, they're good in that, personas are good in that they, they change the focus from what we, what we think we can build, what we think we can do to there's somebody behind that that's going to be using it. Um, so in that regard, they're really good, um, but it has to go a little bit deeper than that. They, they gotta have context. They right. do. If, if they're going to have any value at all, they have to have context. And I've always favored myself a, a bit of a combination between a persona and a user story. So just knowing that somebody is a time starved single mom, I don't think actually helps you much. Maybe the time starved piece, because, yeah. you know, generally you want to be more efficient, but I'd rather know what they're trying to accomplish. 
and yeah. and those types of conditionals which will actually help improve the solution right because some things you could do if you went into that particular scenario and said we have to make everything fast and everything efficient in as few steps as possible because this person is time starved you you might cut out things that are really important to them you, you might make a process that should be a little bit longer because it needs to be confidence instilling or because they're making a big decision and you've cut things out of it or made it seem too too short or too brief or you know that it doesn't care or something like that so the context is so important but so too is the balance with whatever the brand is actually trying to accomplish or achieve right so right. i think there's there is that balance there where and i i think you're i really i agree with both of you like that, that situational reference becomes really really critical because now you have the ability to make decisions in context right so you're not making everything super super fast when really that's only pertinent or relevant at a particular stage of whatever that journey or a particular stage of whatever that scenario looks like mm -hmm. there is going to be a moment somewhere in there where that user is going to need something different and that's you know not an inconsistency that just happens to be the way it is but the the opportunity for the brand then to figure out how does my business model or my service model or my delivery model line up against that? Is that profitable? Because let's face mm -hmm. it, if it's not, they're not going to do it. Uh, not for very long anyway, you know? So at a certain point, the brand needs to be able to figure out how they can scale or apply their model to whatever these scenarios and these use cases and these personas are expecting from their brand to have a good experience. Exactly. Hey, can I ask you a question, Jonathan? You know, I want to go back to something that we said, um, a couple things actually that we said early on. You know, we talked about having this conversation um, with customers, um, you know, which I think part of it is having that conversation, but a part of it is listening and um, and kind of reacting to and recognizing what we hear to make decisions. But with something like, you know, AI and like with artificial intelligence, do we run the risk of, you know, um, pushing UX so that we push customers into a user experience that we want as opposed to listening to them for, um, you know, for what what they want, you know? So are, are brands pushing people down a road that maybe they don't even really want, you know? Yeah, there's some, I think there's, there's certainly some of that. There's, there's thinking about what can we do with insert technology here instead of what is our customer trying to achieve? How does that align with our business? And then how can we solve that problem? It's, it's solutioning and it, 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 it it's easy to do because it's all around us. We, we can read about it. We can see it. Other businesses are trying it. Um, we think that in order for us to succeed, we need to be doing these new things. We need to have all of this stuff. But if we don't align that and think about it critically and say, okay, what are we trying to do as a business? What's our objective? What do we know about our customer? Forget everything else and then fill in that that solution gap. Well, we think if, if we had artificial intelligence and it could help move the customer down this path in a shorter period of time uh, because that's appropriate, then let's let's do that and, and let's try that before we before we spend you know gobs of money on that is there a way that we can figure out if we're close enough to write in order to make it a worthwhile investment um taking smaller 
you know, smaller chunks and, and doing an iterative approach to rolling things out and doing a pilot. And, um, you know, it seems slow and even hearing myself say it, I think, well, that's a lot of steps to get somewhere. Um, but it's a massive investment, usually technology. Um, and to find out that it's not going to do what you thought it did only when you've put it in to the actual environment is that's a shame. Hmm. I have a question for you. So, you know, we're talking about AI, we're talking about innovative things. Um, and at one point I would say user experience design was innovative. Now it is, you know, just like Dave has said previously, it's kind of table stakes. Is there still room for innovation in your role? Or is it really about standardizing so heavily the way that folks use tools that it is an expected user experience every time, something they're already familiar with? And a reliable one, like standardizing or getting to a point where, you know, you've kind of, you know, certainly, um, you know, Jonathan, the work that you did, um, when we first started to hear about you, um, like you, you're pioneering a little bit, right? Like you were, you're kind of being the first one to bring up the difficult conversation. Like, well, wait a second, is that what your customers want? Mm -hmm. So to get to the point where you can actually feel really good about, yes, this is how we articulate that, or this is how we define that, you know, within a, a reasonable degree of certainty. So an organization feels comfortable going forward. I mean, how far away are we from that? Because, you know, I like where Mike was going, like to what degree do you create some stability and some certainty around the user experience and the methodology you use to define it? You need to do that. So before before you can before you can innovate, you've you've got to have those table stakes taken care of. So at that point, then you have permission, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, but I guess that's why I'm here, is is then you can start to think more about innovation and innovation is such a tricky word right it it often gets conflated with invention like something that didn't exist before nobody's ever done this you know we're sending a person into outer space all of a sudden that's not what it is it's it's applying something in a different way that is maybe a unique way to solve a problem um it doesn't have to be inventing something uh, at all so there's that part and i think that's that's an important way to look at it. And one of the things that I fear most in uh, in the teams that I work on and in my own career is uh, to suffer from failure of imagination. And I, I, I don't ever want to do that. Um, and so I think it's important to be continually looking at from an understanding of what the business is trying to do and what the users are trying to do, is there is there a better way than what we're doing right now? We know what we're doing right now is working, but A, how do we know? And B, could there be room to improve it? And and is there a better way? Is there something different? Um, and, and when and when there might be, or when there is, how do we go about exploring that as, as an option? So so that we can innovate, uh, so that we have permission to try things new that are new, so that we have permission to to maybe not succeed and to learn from what we've done and to wrap that back in and, and try it again. Uh, that takes a special organization, in my opinion. Um, but I think I think UX and designers in general, need to continue to have that kind of mindset. That's not 100% of the time that somebody's going to be able to, to behave that way. And, and, and being in this uh, like science lab where everything is new and there's you know explosions happening all over the place. Um, but that you know throughout the course of business, you have these really solid systems and then you continue to 
look at different pieces of them and think, how could we do that better? Is there a better way? Um, that's that's important, and I always want to be in a position where where I can do at least some of that. Right. I had no idea that your your position included explosions, so that is very exciting. Just to kind of continue the thought, so we you know you talked about innovation, you talked about what's coming next. What is coming next? Do you have any kind of pulse on how you see the way we interact with tools? I mean, of course, AI is huge. We've got touch technology. We've got voice technology. We've got gesture technology. Like, are you seeing anything that we're not seeing yet? As consumers, if we put ourselves in the in the consumer um, yeah. context, probably not. I think I think you would be exposed to the same things that that I would be. I don't have access to, you know, like this massive think tank that is uncovering these things that you know nobody knows but, exist. Uh, I think that we'll we'll continue to see um, high high consumer expectations of of business through through digital and, and that's only going to continue it's only going to you know i want to be notified right away by default when the package arrives at my door i want to i want to know exactly where it is um i don't want to have to call to ask any questions if i do have to ask a question you'd better be able to solve it through chat um like all the way through right to solution not like oh now we have to refer you to the call center or or, or whatever so I think that's going to continue to advance. And as that advances, our expectations as a consumer is or as consumers is going to just just continue. Um, you know, I can't think of any kind of specific technology per se that, you know, that that we should all be looking out for. Um, I think the one part and you, you mentioned it, just the, the fire hose of data that is available to business now didn't exist before like because of all these digital touch points and all the things that we can measure um i think that that's new that's a business thing um though but knowing what to do with it is a whole other probably an entirely new podcast but how do you how do you stay agile with so much volume right so how do you stay agile trying to stay stay on top of you know so many different sources of input um so many shifting priorities you know like the very nature i mean listen if you're not developing creating um adapting in some sort of an agile state um you're you you know the sun has already started to set on whatever yeah. little adventure you're on so yeah. um you know we've we've started to embrace that you know more holistically i think across not just our industry but you know i think certainly you know, across the way we we run our businesses but in doing so we're we're just we are you you mentioned drinking from the fire hose like we're drinking from a data and a research and an opinion and a perspective fire hose how do you remain agile when you're trying to juggle so many sources of input that has so much shit they're trying to jam down your throat you you need to know what matters um because there's there's so much data that we can look at right and there's so many things that we can measure and the trap is that we start to value only what we measure instead of understanding what we value and measuring that um, and not paying attention as much to all this other data that we have access to but saying this is what success looks like to us this is what a good experience is to us this is how we'll measure it we'll pay attention to to this data and use that going forward um, instead of subscribing to everything that can possibly come into us and trying to make some decision out of that um, 
because it's it's what we have or it's what we know. Um, so you need, as a business, you need to know what matters. What are we, what's our objective? How do we know we're meeting it? What's our customer trying to do? How do we know that they're meeting it? Um, what's going to tell us that? When we learn, what are we going to do about it? Those are really important things to know before you start to get into, you know, making decisions based on data or doing any research. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to repeat what you just said because I not the whole thing because that'll take forever. But the one <laughs> line that you just said. Really and there's no way of, you're going to remember. Uh, all there's no way I'm going to. I don't even have a chance. Don't value what you measure. Measure what you value is essentially what you just said, and I, I think that is an incredible piece of insight for anybody that's listening that might be embarking on you know a new digital project and starting to think about kind of the ux side of things that's an incredible kind of key motivator guiding light so i think that's an incredible nugget that you just kind of dropped on us there yeah don't value what you measure measure what you value yeah you can jonathan coaches it's easy to 21 yeah it's you said it better than me it's easy to you know we're going to install analytics tracking on this thing that we have. Yeah. Okay. So what? Like, what is what is that? What are you going to do with that? What does that mean? Why do you even need to know half of this stuff? Um, and what what constitutes success for you? Then you measure, and then you adjust. So, so do you start? And maybe I'll just bring this back to a, a question I had started to write down because uh, you know we're starting to get kind of close to time here, but if we were to try to give some guidance to you know who are the folks that you would work with typically would it be a, like a marketing director or a cmo or a, a cto or, or what would you know when you were in the agency yep. who yep. would you be working with most often those those kinds of roles yeah th- these projects were usually driven by somebody in a marketing uh, capacity almost always there was some it involvement um sometimes but on the whole, it was. So if you were to give, you know, kind of a rough high level, here's the five, 10 things, whatever that you need to think about um, when you're starting to think of a new project, what, what would you share with folks? I think you, you can't overlook the importance and, and it, it sounds, I don't know, boring, but Top task um, research is a is a relatively straightforward thing to do. It's like here's all these things that we think you're trying to do with whatever it is that we've made or are attempting to make or whatever. Um, what are the five most important things to you? Uh, and finding that out for as many different types of of, of folks that you're working with um, from an audience perspective. If you know that and you don't know anything else, you're much further ahead and i think that's one of those things you know when you when you don't know anything almost anything will tell you something that's one of the things that you can pay attention to and say all right so we know that this group of people they really value or they really need to do these two things um and then you can do interviews about that and you can ask well why you need to do that and and what's good about that right now what's not where else do you do that um it can focus further effort but starting with it is a good a good spot and it's not overly complicated um and it can lead to you know decision making pretty quickly too i think that that's one of them and then the other is that measurement piece right you you need to know what what you value so you can measure the right things and and make decisions based on that 
And maybe the other, and this could, I could go on for probably another hour with these little bits and pieces, but the, um, are we prepared to act on what we learn through research is another huge one. You can do all this research in the world, but if you're not willing to budge from a position that you've got already, or you're entrenched in, in, in some strategic planning um, direction that that's the way it's going to be. And we have planned to do this thing and we're going to do that. You know, research is only valuable when you act on it. Uh, and so you need to be in a position to say, well, if we learn something that's contrary to what we think, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're prepared to do something. Yeah. Even even consider it. Throwing this you know, away. Even yeah. just to consider that research, you know, you don't always necessarily act on it. But I think that, you know, Jonathan, that's a really good point is like, don't bother doing it if you're not willing to take the risk or, yeah. you know, or listen to it. You know, it goes back to that, that listening piece. You know, uh, one thing I, you know, I maybe didn't really put enough value in going into this conversation, you know, and frankly, I hadn't, hadn't met you before, um, but is the, the creative aspect of the thinking that has to happen, you know, not creative from a visual design, but a creative from a thinking how the customer thinks, almost philosophical, you know, like you have to be able to understand because you may not be the customer you're trying to reach, but you have to be able to think like they think. And I think that's a, you know, something that I, I really took away from this conversation and uh, and frankly probably didn't have a, a, enough respect for from a UX perspective, you know, that uh, that you you have that side of your brain firing. Yeah, so. the, the, the saying you are not your user is incredibly valuable. You can even be interested in the same things or, you know, whatever, but you're, especially as, as if you're a UX designer or a researcher, you know already so much more about what's possible or how things work um, than a, another person with similar interests, but in a completely different career um, from you. Maybe this similar demographic profile, but a completely different career. And so you, you go into it projecting your knowns and your experiences um, and your values, maybe even and say, well, that person seems a lot like me, or we're both interested in skiing or something like that, and saying, well, I'm going to start to make a bunch of decisions because we have this thing that I think aligns or, or bonds us. But more often than not, it doesn't. It happens to be a, a commonality, but there's no, there's nothing to say that they experience the world like you do, or you experience it like they do. I can't imagine anything, I can't imagine anything worse for a brand than not doing this type of user-centric or, or customer-centric research and engagement to truly understand, you know, yeah. the, the difference between needs and wants of your users and your customers versus, you know, needs and wants from an organizational perspective, mm -hmm. except doing the work and then not having the resolve to try to, to respond to it, right? I, I can't imagine, like, don't ask the question if you're not prepared for the answer. Like, if you, it, it's it's a fundamental rule. I think my dad taught me that when I was four years old. Why'd you ask that question? Yep. Well, I gave you the answer, like, what are you going to do with it now, right? So I, I think being able to have the resolve, and it's almost, a, you know, I think there's, I think some brands are going to be tested because I think consumers are going to step up and they're, they're going to have all of this they're going to have this platform where they they really can start to drive and influence how they want to be served or how they want to engage with a brand. I think a lot of brands are going to be tested with some resolve and and I'm not suggesting it's 
it's just ignorance or or anything else like brands will get tested in a very practical way well, holy crap we can't afford to do that or our operational environment doesn't support that or we don't have the it infrastructure to be able to enable that it's almost easier just to you know to say well well maybe maybe we'll do, we'll get to it later let's not make this decision now because there's not an easy way through what would you say to brands that maybe looking at a hard decision or maybe looking at you know user user data or user feedback that is suggesting more than a pivot right that is suggesting more of a fundamental acknowledgement of like okay we are looking at a change now how would you how would you suggest brands start to embrace that feedback as a catalyst for change i would say that if they are if, if they're doing the work to do the research and then they're learning about their customers in some way and it's it they're finding things out that are not aligned with where they're going not aligned with who they are as a business i to me it seems almost certain that there would be some other signal in the business that's also saying that sales are down um you know market shares down or you know some other metric that's really important is likely telling a similar tale and they may not have picked up on it or they may not have understood why it was doing that um so there's there's probably that as well um i think though when it comes down to it one of the best questions is well what's the cost of being wrong what's the worst thing that can happen if we don't have this sorted out well the worst thing is that you'll be out of business and the worst thing is that a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and then what happens when people lose their jobs you can just keep going and going with that and so it then I think behooves any business to to say, how do we know that we're right and and we need to continue on that path, whatever that path is, not the path that we've set out. Maybe if that doesn't line up with what we're learning about where our customers are going and where they think we might need to go with them, um, being being prepared to make that change, um, looking at the other business signals that might be telling them that something is wrong and putting all of that together. Um, I think you 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 have to consider that because the cost of being wrong is is big, um, but the cost of finding out that you're wrong is not. In comparison, it's tiny, right? In comparison to you know what's the cost of a business going under? That's huge. What's the cost of doing UX research? Drop in the bucket compared to that. That's a that's another good little little tidbit there. I like that one as well. So I'm going to start a whole new line of T-shirts based okay. off your quotes, J.K. I'll send you. Um, a it's better than <laughs> better than the shirt you're wearing right now. That garbage that you've got on right now. We've got to get something for you there. Yeah. So this is a, a podcast, which is audio, Dave. So for the folks who are listening, I'm wearing mm -hmm. an Edmonton jersey, which is the greatest club ever to exist. Um, so Jonathan, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really, really appreciate your time today. Great conversation, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really, really loved it. Yeah. So uh, excited to see what you do next. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. It was wonderful to have a chance to discuss this stuff. It's always fun. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Thanks, so, Jonathan. Want more from TMD? Follow us on social media. And remember, all the TMD's podcasts and any other content you may find helpful and useful can be found at tmd.ca. Thanks very much. And until next time, stay safe.